0: Welcome once again, or welcome for the first time, to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast. On this podcast, we discuss articles written in the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy and the implications of these articles for teachers, scholars, and other literacy experts. My name is Matthew Sroka. I'm your host. I'm also a former high school English teacher and a current clinical assistant professor of literacy education at Mercer University. I'm also an associate editor of the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy before we get into the show a few reminders um first that the articles we discuss in this podcast are linked in the show notes and they are free for you all to read uh for example this uh this episode we're discussing accessibility in video gaming and overview and implications for english language arts education by dr sam van bon Gil- gilhern this is available free to read just go to the show notes you can click it there um, and access the article so if you're interested in what we talk about today Please go there to read the full article. Uh, secondly, the Journal of Adoles- Adolescent Adult Literacy is seeking contributions for a special issue on literacies in global contexts. Uh, so if you're interested in, in writing for the journal, um, I'll put a personal plug here. Along with doing the podcast, I'm the content editor for the book review um, side of things for the journal. So if you're interested in reviewing a book that deals with literacy in, glo- in the global context, um, please reach out to me. Again, my information is on the show notes. Um, you can message me on LinkedIn or email me um, if you're interested in that. Finally, I'll say this again—I almost always do—but you're not listening to me, so I'll say it again. I encourage you all to write us a review on Apple Podcasts, um, leave us a, a five-star review if you enjoy uh, what you hear, um, and share us on social media and help spread the word as we kind of get off the ground here with the Journal of Adolescent Literacy podcast. All right, so today's show, let's get into today's show. Um, What can teachers learn from video games? I'm excited about this episode, as this episode has a lot of um, personal interest for me, and it's fun to talk about video games and their implications for the classroom. Um, And today I chat with Dr. Sam Sam Von Gillern about uh, specifically about accessibility of video games and video games and what teachers can learn about accessibility from. from these video games and how we can apply it to what we do in our classroom from how we teach to how we present things and a bunch more. So I'm going to introduce um, Dr. Sam Van Gillern and then we'll jump into jump into the interview. Sam Van Gillern is an assistant professor of literacy education in the department of learning teaching and curriculum at the University of Missouri. His primary research interests include video game literacies and digital citizenships. I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm excited to now be joined the podcast by Sam Von Gillern. Sam, can you kind of talk to us about your background, how you got interested in in video games and in video games in the classroom?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am a lifelong gamer. I've been gaming for close to 35 years, and uh, I've never really stopped gaming. There's been phases where I game a little more, I game a little bit less, but it's something I've always really enjoyed. And I could read Mario before I could read a book. <laughs> so I was interpreting uh, the games, and I was engaging with the games. And so while well, I've played for the last 35 years or so, as as I became an educator as an adult, I really uh, thought about ways that games are engaging, and not just video games, but as someone who enjoys games of all flavors, you know, I grew up playing chess and going to chess Mm -hmm. club at school. Uh, I played soccer and baseball. I played Magic the Gathering. I played video games. And as someone who was an educator and interested in uh, helping students learn through games, I started thinking more and more about the ways that learning is facilitated through gameplay. And while I've thought about that in a variety of ways, including analog games and sports and so on and so forth, my research focuses primarily on video games, which is also what I happen to to play the most these days. It's something that I can play on my own or I can play with a friend online. Um, I'm not getting that to the soccer field as much as I used to. (laughs) Um, But bottom line is, as someone who is more, not just an educator, but more specifically someone in literacy I started thinking about ways that games involve literacy practices. And I was, uh, in my doctoral program, influenced by the work of James Gee and Kirk Squire and Constance Mm -hmm. Steinkuhler and thinking about, well, what are ways that games facilitate learning and and literacy practices? So through that experience and really kind of uh, engaging in learning uh, with their material, I started thinking more specifically about ways that this happens. And and one morning, uh, also being a literacy person, I thought about, uh, you know, I was thinking about reader response theory, which is basically the idea from Luis Rosenblatt that everyone has different interactions with books and makes different meaning from books because everyone's different. We have our own different backgrounds and experiences. So one day as a doctoral student at Iowa State University, I woke up in my bed and I thought, reader response theory and video game play, like there's, there's (laughs) something here. So I ended up really kind of digging into it and thinking through the idea. uh, And then I ended up, uh, you know, drafting and ended up publishing the gamer response and decision framework or the grad framework that I published in simulation and gaming that basically posits, uh, you know, draws from reader response theory to think about ways that video games are similar uh, to reader response theory in that everyone has their own backgrounds and experiences, but something that is a little different from video games than a lot of more traditional texts, such as books or movies or songs, is that the decisions of the player or the decisions of the reader as the player influence the outcome of the game. So I could use different types of uh, strategies. I could use different tools I can use different approaches or go on a left path when you take the right path so the decisions that gamers make really influence the game as a text and what the multimodal symbols that are presented to the player so i think about video game play as having being consisting of three kind of primary parts the gamer the game and then the, the decisions that mediate the game and the player's experience and uh so all that really kind of came together and I was really happy to get it published in simulation and gaming. And that's kind of set the stage for a lot of my work in terms of thinking about gaming as multimodal learning and literacy experiences.
0: Oh, man. Sam, I have a set of questions here that I'm going to go through, but but that response just brought up a, a bunch of other questions in my mind. But I think there's a lot of cool connections there too. I, I think it's interesting the Rosenblatt connection. Um, Because, yeah, I think about kind of my own son and his game playing. He's just gotten into game playing and he plays MLB The Show all the time. But he's always the Orioles because we're from Baltimore or the Braves because we currently live in in Georgia. And thankfully, he's usually these two teams because they're pretty good. It would be bad if we were a a fan of a team who who wasn't very good. It would make it harder for him to play the game, actually. (laughs) Um, And I'm also noticing because he likes baseball, obviously. And I'm noticing I'm starting to use a lot of terms that I never told him, but he's picking up in the video game this language like good take and stuff like this that mm-hmm. the announcers say now he's picking up on it as well. Um, I think there's also a lot of stuff here about kind of, you know, there's a lot of research out there that students bring in their own literacies in the classroom. And so they are picking up these literacies when they play video games, um, whether they explicitly recognize it or not. Um, so so can, can you talk a little bit about, uh, a little more about the benefits of, video game kind of playing in relation to education and learning and literacy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think there there's two broad classifications that scholars use to think about video games as it relates to learning, one of which is serious games, uh, which some people often refer to as educational games. And those are games that are designed for facilitating learning of some sort. It could be language learning, it could be learning math content, it could be learning something else. Um, So serious games are dedicated towards promoting some type of learning for whoever's playing the game. Uh, The other broad category is entertainment games, or sometimes people call commercial off-the-shelf or COTS games. And so these are games that most people are familiar with. This involves, you know, these types of games include all the Mario games, and Call of Duty, and all sort, League of Legends, all sorts of things. So these are games that are not uh, designed explicitly for learning purposes, but primarily for entertainment purposes. But even with them being designed for entertainment purposes, as James G and many other people have noted, that video games are essentially learning machines where people need to learn how to play the game to progress in the game. And video games and video game designers do a really good job at structuring games in ways that help students or help the player that is uh, develop some basic skills and understanding of how the game works. And then progress to more and more complicated skills with more and more difficult enemies and challenges. So the relevance with video games and learning is, I guess, twofold. One of which is with serious games. There's you know some really nice games out there that can help people learn really valuable skills, whether it be in language or math or something else. Um, what I'm more personally interested in is entertainment games uh, because these are games that I've been playing my whole life. This is what I like to spend my time with. A lot of people, I think, uh, recognize that they tend to be of a higher quality, or at least there's a lot of really high-quality entertainment games because they have big-budget studios uh, who have been doing this for decades and convert, uh, like in comparison to serious games, which often have lower budgets. And they're kind of known for not being as much fun <laughs> as entertainment games. <laughs> and, and it's not to say that all serious games aren't fun or anything like that. But rather, uh, they they kind of have a unique challenge by specifically trying to focus on learning uh, with a lower budget and often smaller team sizes. That are kind of restrictions that a lot of big budget studios, um, you know, under the Microsoft or PlayStation or w- like a larger independent studio such as Ubisoft or whatever, they don't necessarily have those constraints. Uh, so and so with the Serious games, we see that type of learning—you know, language learning, math learning, whatever. Entertainment games—I personally am more interested in those because I feel that they're more interesting and authentic to students. You know, Mm -hmm. people know Mario Kart and they like playing Mario Kart, and so my research focuses on helping students think about well, what are ways that they use literacy practices during gameplay, as well as what are the what are ways that they can use literacy practices around gameplay. So uh, actually in uh, Journal Adolescent and Adult Literacy, previous to my more recent publication on accessibility in video games and its implications for English language arts instruction, I published uh, with Carolyn Stuffed from Berry College a piece on how students, middle school students, uh, engage in multimodal analyses of games and reflected on their learning. So they identified how different types of communicative modes, such as, Uh, 3D worlds, uh, so visuals there, such as uh, auditory uh, symbols, such as sound effects, uh, written language, oral language, tactile feedback, all these different types of communicative modes convey different types of information to the player. And so what we found with these middle school students is that they noted that uh, the 3D visuals help them understand the layout of the world. We saw that students uh, used written language to understand different uh, processes in the game because sometimes there's tips that are presented that push X to open this box. Or uh, the written information also presents uh, important information related to characters and dialogue if dialogue is presented in a written format. Um, In some games we saw, uh, for example, in Minecraft Story Mode Season 2, students... Used, uh, understood the dialogue and the story more through uh, verbal communication. Um, or uh, there's, they also identified how hearts and chicken wings in Minecraft represent health and hunger meters, respectively, or how tactile feedback could illustrate that something important is going on that they're, they're taking damage. So, here what we had students do is think about, you know, they played games for 30 minutes. And then they wrote about games for 30 minutes and analyzing how different communicative modes communicated different types of information that helped students understand the game as a text and a kind of a cohesive text in which different communicative modes come together to promote uh, player understanding and learning. So I think that's really interesting. Uh, More recently, I've done a project uh, with a partner school in which we had uh, elementary students take uh play different video games and then create game reviews and strategy guides i'm a person who regularly reads and watches game reviews online and i have been basically since the internet you know became popular and i was on uh, aol.com but we also Hmm. see uh Strategy guides, which is something that I don't—I personally try not to use too much because I like to try to figure it out on my own. But there's no 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 shame in using strategy guides, and particularly for really large and nebulous and kind of confusing games such as the front Software games like Elden Ring um, and the Dark Souls series those i have played and to be honest i use strategy guides quite a bit because there's so much going on in it and you have no idea that there's this tiny little item in this location then half a world away there's this other one that half the world away there's another one if you have all three of them then all of a sudden you can do something special mm-hmm. so uh, basically i regularly consume video game media and as a literacy uh, person interested in literacy development literacy learning Uh, with this study i'm curious how students use different literacy practices while creating game reviews as well as strategy guides and also the literacy practices they utilize in gameplay so to kind of conclude my response to your question i'm most interested in the entertainment games and how they involve various literacy practices but also how we can get students uh, engaged with valuable literacy practices uh, in connection with games as text, you know, s- students are used to having to create book reviews or to have a little essay in response to it. We can do the same thing with video games, and video games are massively popular. Approximately three billion people around the world play video games, and I think that there's a lot of opportunities for teachers to meaningfully integrate video games into the classroom to promote literacy learning.
0: Uh, yeah, I love that, Sam, and. Yeah, I've seen, I mean, there's been a large push for serious games that as 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 you kind of define them. I know even with my pre-K daughter, they like send home like in a subscription to Khan Academy kids and and she can go on there and 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 play it, but it's different from these entertainment games. And you're right. I, I the the value of we talk about reading with literacy, the importance of slowing down, asking questions to the reader and kind of getting them to kind of reflect. Um, and yet sometimes I think when we transition to video games, we view that as kind of an isolating non-educational thing, but we can do the same thing we do, you're right with reading where we ask them to slow down, think about what they're doing, analyze symbols like the heart and 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 the chicken leg and, and do all those things um, to make it a more kind of useful and valuable experience. Um, so, for this particular article, your most recent article in Journal of about literacy, when you talk about the accessibility in video gaming and its implications for English teachers um, and you talk about different ways that video games have become more and more accessible, you talk about visual, auditory, motor, and cognitive accessibility, uh, can you touch on what have video games done in terms of accessibility for, st- for students um, with different abilities? And kind of as teachers, what can we learn from what video games are doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's something that someone who regularly uh, consumes video game, video games, media, you know, I watch a lot of the large showcases from Xbox and uh, PlayStation and Ubisoft and so on and so forth. And something that I've noticed through uh, those presentations, but also my just general engagement with games as someone who, you know, occasionally will go to the options menu to uh, check out a setting or to change a setting based on my preference. I've noticed that more and more there are a whole suite of vi- uh, accessibility features to make gaming more accessibility or more accessible to more people and to differently abled people, and I think this is such such a cool and important thing which is why i decided to develop and publish this article with my colleague brady nash um, at miami university in ohio so he's also a gamer and we, we started thinking together about well what are ways that games promote accessibility and what are ways that we might be able to unpack these in relation to implications for english language arts education and so uh, basically, we, we looked through different uh, types of scholarship and different resources, including information from the World Health Organization, from the Games Accessibility Guidelines, uh, among others, to think about, well, what are ways that games promote accessibility and can promote accessibility for differently abled gamers? And so we came up with four broad categories that generally align with perspectives from the World Health Organization World health organization, including visual, auditory, motor, and cognitive uh, disabilities, or or accessibility uh, options. And so in terms of visual accessibility, there's a a few different types. um, And actually, for all of these, there's, there's quite a few different ways that they promote it. And the Games Accessibility Guidelines, which you can find online, which kind of serves as guidance and inspiration for game developers, uh, has a really nice list of all sorts of different features kind of aligned or largely aligned with these categories. And so one way uh, that we see visual accessibility uh, and you know, promoting visual accessibility by game designers is through different uh, color blind modes. So mm-hmm. as we know, different people, uh, you know, their eyes interpret colors in different ways. And historically, uh, a lot of these people just had to uh, deal with it uh, when they're engaged with media. Um, and what's really nice, you know, there's different types of color blindness. Uh, my father has color blindness as well. So it's also an issue that I know uh, kind of you know, tangentially through him. And I know sometimes it causes him some difficulties uh, is that uh, this allows people who have different types of vision to uh, interpret the, the game uh, because the game is modified to a color palette that, uh, is easier for their eyes to recognize and to to be able to um, kind of differentiate between uh, different objects or different features and such. There's also um, another type of uh, feature for promoting visual accessibility is high contrast modes. So you see this uh, in more and more games, and particularly big budget games uh, that have you know more resources to allocate towards all these types of features and bigger teams that can promote. Promote it, but we see it on independent games as well, which is great. So, high contrast mode, um, and actually, I included a figure in the piece for this article that illustrating high contrast mode from The Last of Us Part One. And so, what this typically does, and um, different games handle it uh, you know, a little bit differently, but uh, the general idea is by making it easier for people with vision difficulties or limited vision to be able to understand. Uh, what information on the screen is important so they can uh, navigate and play the game successfully. So in uh, Last of Us Part 1 uh, for high contrast mode, for example, is that there's essentially, as opposed to having the whole rainbow of colors uh, that we that are in traditional color palettes, uh, there's four primary colors, which is dark gray, which represents more or less everything that's not all that important, um, we see blue, which is for your character or friendly characters. We see red, which is for enemies or dangerous characters. And We see yellow, which is for objects that you can interact with uh, that are important. So, if you need to be able to go through a door, for example, then that door is important, and uh, that allows those four colors allow people to, uh, with you know, vision difficulties. To be able to clearly focus on the information that's important by graying out the stuff that's not as important, and being able to understand where their character and friendly characters are, where enemies are, and where objects that they can or need to interact with are. Um, so that's one way that visual uh, accessibility is promoted through video games. So I can continue on yeah. the auditory, motor, yeah. and cognitive. But I want to open up a chance if you want to if we want to unpack that a bit
0: yeah i would i i would i would like to so what does so those are two i think really um clear interesting things to to help people who are colorblind and help you know with the the contrast of the of the visuals. What does that look like in terms of of teaching so like how can teachers take the information and apply that that visual accessibility to what they're doing in the classroom
1: sure so uh, with colorblindness, admittedly, it might be a little more challenging, but I think there are settings on various computers that allow um, you know, people to adjust for that. So when students have, you know, a lot of schools these days are one-to-one, and if we know that a student has an issue related to colorblindness, then I think it's uh, great if teachers can generally just uh, first understand that and second, see if based on the technology they have, if they can adjust the screen accordingly. In terms of high contrast modes, I think this has larger implications for teaching um, because all teachers are creating uh, all teachers create different types of information for students, whether it be paper based posters or whether it be digital slides or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And something that I've become more and more attuned to over the last um, several years is that and it's not teachers, it's people in general. That sometimes, uh, like if they're creating a PowerPoint presentation, then those PowerPoint presentations don't necessarily have great contrast because, you know, maybe it's yellow lettering on, you know, a pink background or whatever it is. I know that's kind of a more extreme example, but the idea holds true. Is so that teachers, my idea for promoting visual accessibility, is to really think about contrast when they create information for students because that makes it easier for everyone to see um, and makes information more clear. Uh, We've all probably uh, encountered times where, whether it be in education or just our day-to-day experiences where there's some type of text or color pattern that makes it difficult to read or interpret the information. And this uh, presents issues for us. Well, we're trying to understand it um, and we're not really sure if we do. So that takes our kind of cognitive resources and focus away from uh, making meaning of that information and more just trying to understand it in the first place. So I think uh, really, uh, it's really important for educators and everyone to think about uh, creating high contrast visuals and information for their audience to interpret uh, to make things easier for everyone to understand
0: yeah I, I go into a lot of school systems in my role here to observe student teachers, and there's one school system that requires all their teachers to put um when the students walk in to have on the board um a PowerPoint slide that has a lot of information. It has the objective of the day. It has the agenda. It has specific assignments going to do that day. It has homework. like it has these like ten different items. And every time, and it's in every single classroom, begin the period. And I always find this kind of stressful because the font's small, there's no, it's all black and white, and there's no, nothing to draw my eye. I don't know what to look at. I don't know what's more important and what's less important. Um, so I think even using kind of different color fonts, right, to highlight the important information so your eyes don't get lost in, in too much information on, on the screen,
1: too. Yeah. And so kind of what you're talking about brings me to one of the other points as relates to cognitive accessibility. Sure. And so this kind of uh, really what you're saying really kind of makes me think about it, which is another one of the four categories that we examined. Yeah, let's go and there. So, and so simple directions is a really important thing in um, understandable directions. You know, there's times where directions need to be uh, more complicated because it's a more complicated task. So... But simultaneously, there's also times where we can really make our you know, directions or information clear to a target audience. And we should because we want people to understand what's expected of them. We want our students to understand what's expected of them and be able to uh, go back at will to see directions or get the information that they need so they can be successful in their learning. And so video games do a really good job with this um, in a couple ways. Uh, one of which is they include simple directions um, you know you know straightforward understandable directions so you understand you need to go to this location so, okay well that's about as straightforward as it gets um, away uh, there's also push x to jump you know that's a simple direction you know it, it's not overcomplicated. Um push r3 to crouch these types of things are very straightforward um, if a lot of video games, uh, kind of in between loading screens, they'll have tips for the player, like consider this or know that you know this button combination does this. And those are typically just like a single sentence or a single phrase to help people understand the game in ways they can succeed in it. Another way that games promote cognitive accessibility uh, is through uh, waypoints. And so that is basically a, a way that on your map, the game guides you often with the help of a compass if it's a game like that so as you spin your character in the 3d world it shows that the particular target uh, location whether it be a a main objective or mission or a side objective or just a character you can er interact with that these are places of interest these are places you can go Uh, a lot of games you can Uh, modify your map or put different markers on your map to help you navigate to take you to places that you're interested in in addition to the waypoints provided by uh, the game itself and uh, uh, additionally and james g points this out is that games promote information or they provide information just in time and on demand so it tells you the information Mm -hmm. you need you know let's say you're early in the game and you need to crouch to go under some ledge or something like that it will say push R3 to crouch. And then so that's just-in-time information that helps the player understand what's expected of them. But simultaneously, that information is available on demand, in which the player can go to the options menu, look at the control settings, and then through the control settings, uh, uh, basically identify all the different uh, controls and the buttons that you need to push to uh, accommodate or to complete that particular action. So by having information on demand and just in time and providing clear and simple directions that can be uh, examined you know, with the different missions and such, you can typically go to the menu, uh, you push pause, and then kind of look, these are my primary objectives right now, or these are secondary objectives, these are optional objectives. Um, so all that stuff makes it easier for the player to understand uh, important issues as well as how to accomplish tasks and get to locations
0: yeah and i can clearly see all the kind of connections there to education because i think sometimes we struggle as teachers like do we how much instructions do we give um and i think having it there in a way that students can go back to and look at if they need a reminder what they're doing, if they need a reminder what step they're on in their, whatever their process, whatever their assignment they're working on, it's there. But for some students who just know, okay, I remember R3, I I know how to crouch. Mm -hmm. They don't need the reminder, but having it there for those students who who do need that reminder, you can see how it's more accessible to everyone. And I, I also like I, I think this is true, right? What you were talking about is this idea of when you first open a game and first start a game, they're not going to throw complicated instructions at you, um, you know, your first five minutes of playing in the game. But after you've been playing for a while, it seems like the difficulty increases and the instructions increase. And I think there's something there too, in education that that we can um, we don't need to, you know, in the first five minutes of class, overwhelm them with all of these instructions. We can give them, hey, listen here here's kind of step one um and then we'll go from there and we can get kind of more complex as you get more into the assignment or the task for that day
1: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think uh james g also talks about cycles of expertise um that are present in video games and how video games promote learning and that we typically will introduce something uh you know a particular task and then we allow students to practice it and then we teach them something new And then we come back to the first thing to help them understand like how uh, to solidify their understanding of the first task, but also to see how the first task or skill relates to the second task. And I I think about this. It's really clear to me um, with math, for example. First, we help students understand numbers and be able to count. And then we do uh, addition, and then subtraction, then multiplication, and division. And each part of the way we are not just you know, introducing a new skill, but also helping students uh, practice previous skills and connect previous skills with new skills in these cycles of expertise. And so uh, by having simple directions, focusing on simple, straightforward tasks and allowing students to uh, at, you know, provide them information on demand and just in time, these are great ways that teachers can promote cognitive accessibility by helping students understand what's expected of them. And if they have questions, they can go back and uh, you know, review materials from the teacher to clarify uh, what, what they need to do and how they can proceed.
0: All right, good. So we have visual accessibility, kind of high contrast images to make it easier for students visually. Uh, we have this idea of cognitive accessibility where simple directions and then kind of directions on demand if they need kind of these reminders of what they're doing. Um, What about auditory accessibility? What can we learn about uh, auditory accessibility from video games?
1: Yeah, so uh, a couple things. Uh, So, as a a little overview of uh, auditory accessibility in video games, there's a couple different ways that this occurs, and one of which is volume adjustments. Uh, There are different types of sounds in video games. You know, there's sound effects, there's music, there's dialogue. Um, so on and so forth and so for example someone who uh, uh, has an auditory disability might find it difficult to hear character dialogue for example when there's an explosion in the back room uh, background of the game or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. so one way that game designers promote auditory accessibility is by allowing people to adjust different types of sounds um, so they can, you know, often on a 1 to 10 scale, uh, what what is the loudness of sound effects? What is the loudness of music? What is the loudness of character dialogue? And all of these can basically be put to, you know, zero as off to 10 to being really loud, and then you can mix and match them as as makes m- most sense to you based on what you want to get out of the game. Um, also, subtitles are a great way that, um, games promote auditory accessibility, because if someone has some difficulty hearing, uh, for example, then they have the ability to uh, put subtitles on the screen. And also, a lot of times these days, the subtitles can be customized in various ways. So they can be high contrast subtitles. They can be smaller subtitles. Mm. They can be larger subtitles. We can Some games even allow you to change the color of the subtitles. Um, and another thing is relates to auditory accessibility, which is really kind of cutting edge and not many people are doing it, but it'd be cool. And I think it will expand is um, actual signing. So using American sign language in games. So there's a little sub window on the screen and Microsoft's kind of taking the lead with this. And I, My guess is that it will, uh, other games will follow. So, and one of, one of the more recent uh, Forza racing games from Microsoft, literally for the dialogue for narration there you can have uh, a, a visual uh, video of a person actually signing what's you know the information being communicated by the narration or by the character dialogues and you can once again have have this as with a high contrast black background or you can have it just be superimposed over the screen so you know you basically just see the cut out of their body and their their movements um, but this is another way that it's really kind of cutting edge and uh but it's really cool to kind of see and this is something this is a big reason why I was so interested in writing this article is video game designers and the video game community really is focusing a lot of time and attention on accessibility the game awards uh the annual game awards actually has uh, innovation and accessibility award and so uh, I forget the exact Uh, the the exact comparison with total numbers of viewers but last year for example i think there was close to i can't recall off the top of my head but 90 million or so viewers of the game accessibility awards Mm. and i think the oscars had more like 15 million (laughs) so we're looking at like six times more people around the globe are watching the game awards and here we have a focus where Here we have 80 million people, 90 million people around the globe watching this. And there is a specific award that draws attention to accessibility and innovation and accessibility in video games. So I think this is just a really cool thing that gamers and the game community and game designers are saying, this is important. Everyone who wants to be able to play should be able to play. So what can game designers and developers do to make games accessible to as many people as possible in ways that allow people to customize their experience um, to promote uh, accessibility and enjoyment. And so I think that's really cool stuff.
0: Yeah, that is cool stuff. And I'll just comment real quick on the auditory stuff. Just per, 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 personally, when I play video games, I'm one of those weirdos who I, I put the video game on mute. <laughs> I deal all day with people and noises and I just kind of like the peace and quiet and I'll just go mute with it. But But you bring up a great point because I think education, has cared for a long time about accessibility like this is not an issue we've ignored like we care about mm-hmm. accessibility we have i think made a lot of strides to make learning more accessible to all learners right mm-hmm. however sometimes we don't have the resources and funds that maybe a, a video game company um or a large company that owns the video games um has access to um mm-hmm. and so i i think like this i think that's a really um uh, has a ton of potential here right to to learn from the video game industry and all the things they're doing with accessibility and how it can apply to education all right let's get to the last one motor accessibility um what have you seen in video games that teachers can take away from from
1: yeah so uh motor accessibility in video games we see in a, in a few different primary ways uh video games and mini video games really require complex a button pushing in very Mm. specific sequences to accomplish various goals, such as defeating an enemy or solving a puzzle or whatever it might be. Um, So uh, I guess I kind of think of two kind of general categories of motor accessibility in video games, one of which is allowing people to customize their controls for a specific game. So that is to use what is kind of more... uh, uh, Kind of general hardware that you know more or less everyone uses like a, a playstation controller a regular playstation controller or a regular xbox controller and essentially people can customize their controls so people who uh maybe have different abilities to push certain buttons based on uh you know kind of the what their hand what you know the capabilities of their hands they can adjust controllers to and uh, can just adjust the controls to basically use whatever buttons that they can push. And you know, this might be half the buttons on the pad as opposed to you know the full 14 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Halo, I believe it's the new hit, like the newest Halo game, for example, uh, allows p- people to ha- like play in right like right hand only mode or left hand only mode. Huh. So there's actually preset controls that allow people who have one. Uh, hand available to play the game to be able to use a single hand to, to play the game. And that's really cool. Uh, and then a lot of times there's customizable mapping as well. So uh, a lot of games these days, they'll have kind of somewhere between four and six or maybe eight different types of preset controls, but a lot of games will also allow people to customize it. So I want uh, X to be jump. I want Y to be duck. I want Uh, b to b shoot, whatever it is, it allows people to, uh, based on the frequency they think that they might use that button, as well as the abilities of their hands to push different buttons, allows them to accomplish that. There's also um, ways that, uh, beyond adjusting specific controllers for specific buttons like that, that, uh, and, and I'll just lot. jump in real quick and yeah. say,
0: I mean, I had enough trouble. I remember last year trying to get one of my students who was left-handed, getting them a left-handed desk, <laughs> and uh, let, yeah. let let alone all of these kind of innovations. Um, uh, as you think about, I mean, you can think about all the connections to to we use computers so much to typing and and how we can make this easier for students who have different yeah. abilities in terms
1: of of typing and what they're able to do. Um
0: yeah. But anyway, go go Absolutely. ahead.
1: Oh, you're good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, it's a really you know a lot of people are left-handed. A lot of students are left-handed, and and that's a, a a pretty common thing that people know. And and it's interesting that it's it can still be so difficult to you know find a way to make you know writing <laughs> or you know... things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so another way that games allow people to customize controls is by simplifying uh, different. Uh, you know, tasks and the buttons required to accomplish tasks. So some games might, you know, typically, uh, or kind of in their regular settings, require a person to push, you know, five buttons uh, in order to accomplish a task or push a button repeatedly, uh, kind of, you know, know, pushing it repeatedly to open a a locked door or something like that. So there's ways that games promote uh, kind of motor accessibility by simplifying that or maybe they just need to push the button once a single time. They don't need to keep pushing it or have some complicated combination of buttons, but allows a single push, and that allows them to accomplish unlocking the door as opposed to having to repeatedly mash the button for 10 seconds, um, because that requires physical effort. The second way that uh, games, or a second way that games promote uh, accessibility is through customized controllers. So this is hardware more specifically, um, and so uh, Xbox is uh, once again, and Microsoft have kind of taken the lead with this, the Xbox adaptive controller can be adapted to people with all sorts of different motor accessibilities uh, that allow them to uh, put on different types of uh, uh, features or devices onto the Xbox adaptive controller that make it um, make games playable for them, which is amazing uh playstation has uh, more recently announced project leonardo which is something uh, kind of similar to the xbox adaptive controller to basically allow uh, people playing playstation games to use project leonardo which is still in development um, but hopefully out in not too long to make it easier for differently abled people to use controls to play games and have fun and so Uh, Those are the two primary types of motor accessibility between customizing controls within kind of the software of the game, but also customizing controls within uh, game hardware.
0: Oh, that's really neat. And I mean, as far as controls, I mean, I I mentioned my son plays the show and I do too. We play together, but we both have the settings for completely different controls. So he just has to hit like one button to throw to a base where I have a meter and I have to make sure the meter gets to a certain point and he can't match that meter up yet. Um, but we're both able to kind of play the same game just with different controls. So it's kind of makes the, the playing ground, uh, the playing fit a little bit more even. Um, So that's really cool. And I, so how could that, again, let me, let me kind of push you to make that connection education. How could kind of easier buttons pushing and some of these accessibility features um, like different controllers, how could, how could that help teachers? How could that apply to teaching?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a a couple of things and, uh, I haven't mentioned it yet in the interview, I believe, um, but we also talked about it in the article universal design for learning. So yeah. this is basically the idea that by following some general guidelines, teachers can make access- learning more accessible for everyone. And so with motor accessibility to kind of come back to that, a couple things. So large, uh, large button keyboards, for example, um, mm-hmm. or maybe a student, uh, really can benefit from using a mouse because a trackpad is difficult for them uh, or vice versa. Um, so thinking you can think about it kind of from the hardware level a little bit and under, making sure that students who, uh, you know, whatever reason might benefit from a, a large, um, you know, large button keyboard, that they can use those. Uh, but if we think about kind of beyond kind of keyboards or, or mice or, you know, actual specific tech, uh, technological devices is having, low motor requirements when possible. So there might be some students for example whose motor uh, abilities are limited based on some sort of some sort of issue and it, we can't necessarily uh, we shouldn't necessarily expect that, that student to uh, have to use their arms a ton when creating a poster for example because mm-hmm. that could you know if they're trying to hang something on the wall or whatever that can make it even more difficult So uh, basically, by having whatever your assignments are, having uh, options, at least for kind of limited motor uh, necessity, that can be a really helpful way to really kind of think about, well, there are students who have different motor uh, issues. And sometimes it's easier to see for a teacher. Sometimes a teacher might be less uh, aware that it's there. Mm-hmm. And by making tasks uh, relatively simple and that require uh, a, a high degree of physical effort that can make these types of activities more accessible.
0: Yeah. I like that. I like that. I like applying in these applying these kind of lens, this education lens to what we're learning from video games and how we see it show up with our students in our classrooms. Um, I think that's really important and, and really powerful. And I'm glad people like you, Sam, are, are thinking about these things and, and having this conversation. Um, so just kind of to to wrap up this discussion, what else? Is there anything else that you want to kind of share about how uh, about what video games can teach us about how we go about teaching our students that you didn't already mention?
1: Uh, I think I think we've covered it pretty, okay. you know, pretty, pretty well. But I guess in, in some uh, video games are designed in ways that are that promote learning. And James G really kind of pioneered a lot of this work you know, about 20 years ago and thinking theoretically, what are ways that games uh, promote learning? And that's by uh, creating types of uh, abiding by certain learning principles or integrating certain learning principles, such as providing information uh, just in time as when students need it or the one the player needs it, or making it on demand, allowing people or players to customize their experience, or providing cycles of expertise Or allowing people to assume different roles um, within a particular field. So there's, uh, or you know, within a particular context. So there's even beyond thinking about games as learning as like, hey, I need to uh, bring video games into the classroom to promote learning. You know, that that's not that's not what I'm saying at all. But rather, there are ways that we can one learn from games and then integrate game game and learning principles uh, into the classroom. And two, uh, if we want to in- in integrate literacy activities uh, in connection with gameplay, we can really think about video games as texts the same way that we might have students analyze a book or an advertisement or a song or whatever. So uh, I don't think it necessarily requires a ton of, uh, a ton of expertise. A lot of I'm sure a lot of students throughout the country are a lot more talented with video games than than their teachers and that's just fine and we need to be able to provide students opportunities to mentor the teachers and mentor one another to engage with and also critique um, these massively popular forms of media
0: yeah and maybe also to add to that for, for parents out there who have kids who play video games maybe look at video games as, as as not an isolated activity but maybe kind of watch them play, um, play with them, talk to them about what they're playing and what they're doing and kind of have them not just be a separate thing that they just do in their bedroom, but have that be um, something you kind of converse about together.
1: I I couldn't agree more. And I think, and James G kind of talks about this. He, he, uh, you know, back 20 years ago, that there's not necessarily, media in and of itself isn't necessarily good or bad, a piece of media, but rather it's what you do with it. So if, you know, if parents or teachers can have meaningful conversations about games and, and th- help students or players or their children understand uh, what they're doing in the game or why those things are interesting or how they're making meaning of the game story or how they can critique issues that are problematic in the game, mm-hmm. whether it be related to accessibility or issues such as misrepresentation or lack of representation. These are all things that parents and teachers can do Um and I think it's important that we provide students opportunities, particularly given uh, you know the MPD group has uh, so a research uh, firm shows that I think a lot of students are playing close to 20 hours a week um, of video games. So I think we should help students think critically about games in ways that uh, games are pr- promote positive entertainment and learning experiences, but also the way that games can. Uh, maybe be problematic because games can be, you know, the, their content can be problematic just as it can be in a movie or a show or an advertisement. So I think yeah. there's a lot of ways that teachers and parents can think about using games in productive ways related to reflection and learning um, that I don't often think are, are, are those conversations are necessarily happening to a large degree, particularly given the prominence of gaming and youth culture.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I chuckle because I don't know if my wife has ever played a minute of video games, but a few months ago we had two really kind of in-depth conversations around video games. One is because we watched the HBO series, The Last of Us, and we talked about kind of where that came from and coming from a video game. And then um, I forget the exact name of the, but there's the new Harry Potter role-playing game, which brought along a lot of controversy about JK Rowling and how do we feel about this video game. And my wife and I talked about um, that as well. And so we were able to have these conversations and video games, kind of a springboard to have these kind of larger conversations about culture and society. And I think video games, uh, yeah, allow us to do that. So I think that's cool.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, as you know, Sam, I have a bunch of other questions. We're out of time though. Um, but at some point I would like to have you back on the podcast to get to some of my other questions. Cause I have questions about the role of, uh, for example, uh, virtual reality. I know Apple just came out with their new VR set. Um, and how that might apply to education uh, potentially in the future, and and your thoughts on Kahoot and It and th- and some of these gamification things that we've done with education. But I'm going to have to hold off on those questions because we're out of time. But maybe we can uh, do this conversation again and talk about some of the other things.
1: I'd love to. I've had a lot of fun, and I appreciate the opportunity, Matt. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Sam. Appreciate you be- being on here.